So Jacob tells the 12 tribes what will befall them in the days ahead or in the last days. We're just going to get through 12 verses tonight, but I'm going to read the whole chapter. So Genesis chapter 49. And Jacob called his sons and said, Gather together that I may tell you what shall befall you in the last days. Gather together and hear, you sons of Jacob, and listen to Israel your father. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, and the beginning of my strength, the excellency of dignity and the excellency of power. Unstable as water, you shall not excel, because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it, and he went up to my couch. Simeon and Levi are brothers, instruments of cruelty are in their dwelling place. Let not my soul enter their council, let not my honor be united to their assembly. For in their anger they slew a man, and in their self-will they hamstrung an ox. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. And I will divide them in Jacob, and I'll scatter them in Israel. Judah, you are he whom your brothers shall praise. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's children shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He bows down, he lies down as a lion, and as a lion, who shall arouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the people, binding his donkey to the vine, and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He washed his garments in wine, his clothes in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine, his teeth whiter than milk. Zebulun shall dwell by the haven of the sea, and he shall become a haven for ships, and his border shall adjoin Sidon. Issachar is a strong donkey lying down between two burdens. He saw the rest was good, and that the land was pleasant. He bowed his shoulder to bear a burden and became a band of slaves. Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent by the way, a viper by the path that bites the horse's heels so that its rider shall fall backward. I have waited for your salvation, O Lord. Gad, a troop, shall tramp on, upon him, but he shall triumph at last. Bread from Asher shall be rich, and he shall yield royal dainties. Naphtali is a deer let loose, and he, is, he uses beautiful words. Joseph is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by a well. His branches run over the wall. The archers have bitterly grieved him, shot at him, and hated him. But his bow remained in strength, and the arms of his hands were made strong by the hands of the mighty God of Jacob. From, the, from there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. By the God of your father, who will help you? And by the Almighty God, who will bless you? With blessings of heaven, blessings of the deep that lies beneath, blessings of the breasts and the womb, Blessings of your father have excelled the blessings of my ancestors. Up to the utmost bound of the everlasting hills, they shall be on the head of Joseph, on the crown of the head of him who was separated from his brothers. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf. In the morning he shall devour the prey. At night he shall divide the spoil. All these are the twelve tribes of Israel. 
And this is what their father spoke to them. And he blessed them. He blessed each one according to his own blessing. Then he charged them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field of Machpelah, which is before Mamre, in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field of Ephron the Hittite as a possession for a burial place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah his wife. There I buried Leah in the field and the cave that is there were purchased from the sons of Heth. And Jacob had finished commanding his sons. He drew his feet up into the bed, breathed his last, and was gathered to his people. So there's a lot there. Um, Hebrews 11, if you want to turn there, we'll get started kind of early here. And just to see these passages with your own eyes. Um, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 21. Of all the things in Joseph's life, look at what the Holy Spirit says in Hebrews chapter eleven twenty-one. It says, By faith Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, worshipped, leaning on the top of his staff. That's it. That's, uh, he's coupled together with the patriarchs and some of the other mentions of, of faith. Um, but to, verse 21, of all the things that in his life that you would consider the faith, you know, coming through back from Laban and wrestling with the Lord and hanging on to him and prevailing by hanging on to him, that took faith. He wanted to know who God was. He wanted to be uh, known, um, and he became a new name. He, he didn't want to become known. He wanted to know who it was he was wrestling with, and he wanted to know the name of God. Of all the things in his life, the Holy Spirit chooses this little chapter in the Hall of Faith, Hebrews chapter 11, for an example. Chapter, Hebrews chapter 11 is an example for us um, concerning our faith, um, Hebrews 11 is a cloud of witnesses for our faith, and we are to live by faith. Now it says, back in 49, it says, in the last days. The word last there means after, apart, the end, the end of an issue. It, mean, it can mean the, an event, the end of an event. The latter time, prophetic, for future time. It can mean the posterity, the last or the last, or the hindermost, in other words, the farthest extent of, a, of an edge or, or the farthest you can go with any kind of a matter. It doesn't necessarily mean the span of their days. In other words, you think, look at some of these things and you think that it has to do with their whole, this is what they will be known as, and, and sometimes it, it appears that way, and it could be because it means that, uh, that uh, what is going to be their end, you know, what's, what are you going to end up being like, in other words. Um, but it doesn't necessarily mean for the entirety of the span of their days, but the ending result. And where they'll be located is mentioned. Um, and this is a parallel we'll see to uh, in Chronicles, where Moses blessed the 12 tribes or, or uh, basically declared what their uh, lives or what their generations were going to turn out like. Um, so, when, you know, where they're located, what their position in, in completion when they take possession of the promised land. But then also it says days. So the last days. Now, the word day can mean time. 
a year, a lifetime, a division of time, a period of time, all time for that matter. Now, he knows their future. He's declaring them, this is what's going to happen in the last, for you, you 12 tribes, at your end, when you come to the end of, of uh, what you're called to and what you're going to be. And so he says, you know, this is what will meet you. This is what's going to be your encounter. And he prophesies these things for them. And this is a prophecy and a blessing. It's not some kind of assignment for them to obey. And you can kind of see that as you read through it. And that's an application for us, the same thing. Because we were born again, the Holy Spirit dwells in us. And we have this, this uh, what seems like throughout the New Testament, all these commandments. And we kind of treat them like some kind of law, like from the Old Testament. But in fact... These are things that just are what going to befall us because the Holy Spirit dwells in us and works these things in us. All we need to do is be ready to walk in them. And the striving and the groaning and the, and the, the fighting within ourselves by our own strength is not what's being talked about. And that's the same thing for what he's saying here. You know, it's a prophecy, not some kind of assignment. You know, we, we don't do things as believers to be justified. We do what we do in obedience because we are justified already in him and we have that from him and now we just walk in that obedience and these things that are being done in us again by the holy spirit who both works in us both to will and to do his good will he works that in us not just to do it but to will to do it and it's just such a glorious truth a little application but god will divide the land uh, for the 12 tribes and their borders and we'll see how that all goes later on if we, as we travel through the Old Testament and, and so forth. But if you look at verse 13, uh, it says he shall become a haven, a future tense. So what you want to keep your eye out for if you study through this and you want to look at it at home on a notebook, make note of any mentions of time. In other words, this is a future thing. This shall become a haven for Verse 13 and verse 18, it says, I waited. In other words, there was a passing of time until that salvation came. In verse 23, it says, he had, um, you have bitterly been grieved. You were shot. There's not going to be shooting. It's a, it's a past tense thing. Uh, you were hated. And so for Joseph, it says in verse 23, it's a past tense thing. Um, and so whether from whatever perspective when he comes into the land or where he's talking about now going back to how his brothers you know, put him into, into the pit. Verse 24, it says, from there is the shepherd. And that means present and future, the shepherd that will come. And there are others, I'm sure that I'm missing, but these are examples of the end of the issue or prophetic for a future period of time or a lifetime for each of these tribes um, and uh, their posterity, their characteristics. But verse 10 is interesting because we're talking about recognizing when time is being talked about. Shall not depart until Shiloh comes. This will never occur for the rest of time. In other words, the scepter is not going to depart from Judah for the rest of time. And... Uh, this is uh, present, future, and never-ending. If you want to turn to Isaiah 2, it's 
it's kind of interesting. I almost wish everybody could raise their hand when they get there, so then I would start reading. Otherwise, you know, I don't know if I'm reading over the top of you. But um, don't do that, I'm just saying. Uh, and then some of you got your phones you're working with, and you just, there it is. Isaiah 2, 1 through 4, the word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem, now it shall come to pass in the latter days, the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills, and all nations shall flow to it. Many peoples shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways, and we will walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word from the Lord from Jerusalem. And he shall judge between the nations, and rebuke many people. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. And nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. It says in the last days. This is future prophecy. And the rest of the chapter talks about the day of the Lord, and then he goes on to individual judgments throughout in, in uh, Isaiah and, and as you read through. But here it says, it shall come to pass. This is future. This will take place in the future. Turn to Ezekiel chapter 38. And just two verses, again, to point out the same aspect, but with a little different context. You're familiar with you know, Ezekiel 36, 37, 38, 39. Uh, if you've been here any length of time as we teach through the Bible, that's often a reference for prophecy, often, often especially in the days that we're living in. But if you just look at verses 8 and verse 16, he says, And many days you will be visited. In the latter years you will come into the land of those brought back from the sword and gathered from many people on the mountains of Israel, which had long been desolate, they were brought out of the nations, and now all of them dwell safely. He's talking to uh, setting his face against that alliance of nations, Gog, Magog, Rosh, Meshach, Tubal, and Persia. And um, down in verse 16, he says, You will come up against my people, Israel, like a cloud to cover the land. It will be in the latter days, and I will bring you against my land. So shall the nations uh, so that the nations may know me when I am hallowed in you, O Gog, before their eyes. And if you don't know that about Ezekiel, that's the key phrase. He does all these things so that the nations will know who he is and that he is the defender of Israel and faithful to them. These things are in the last days, he says. Um, the same word that's, that we saw in, in Genesis for last days is the same word here, latter, but last is the exact same um, Hebrew word. It'll be in the latter days future. And now we're familiar, like I said, with those nations. Um, just by a side note, if you're looking at the news, we've, we're seeing right this week, just about every day, there's news about how Russia and Iran, Iran is Persia. It's called Persia until 75 years ago. And so it's, if you look at an old map, it's still called Persia and half of Iraq before British you know, rule was taken out and they divided it up the way they wanted to and gave everybody their land. Now, praise the Lord, at the same time they did that in 1948, they also made Israel a nation, fulfilling prophecy. A, a nation was born in a day back in May 14, 1948. 
And uh, that is prophetic, and it's never been seen or done before. And uh, just this little passage of time when they had, uh, it was after the Holocaust, there was uh, something that the Lord had allowed to take place, but it made it possible so that the nations of the world would actually give them their land. And I think within a year after, or a year before, it would have never happened. The nations of the world despised Israel, and it's only grown, grown worse. But uh, just about every week, we see these uh, news items that are showing us that we are very much right now in the last of the last days. Back in Genesis 49, um, we'll pick it up here with Reuben. In verses 1 and 2, and then also in verse 28, we won't be getting there. These are the verses that summarize this, this uh, section or this chapter. You know, he says, gather together and I'm going to tell you what's going to befall you in the last days. And in 28, all these are the 12 tribes of Israel. This is what their father spoke to them. And he blessed them. And he blessed each one according to his own blessing. I mean, if we read through some of these, it doesn't look like much of a blessing. Uh, but he indeed did bless them, though, at the end of it all. And gave him, they were still the 12 tribes of Israel. So verses 3 and 4, talking about Reuben. Um, Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, and the beginning of my strength, the excellency of dignity, the excellency of power. Nevertheless, unstable as water, you shall not excel because you went up to your father's bed. You defiled it. And then it's like he says to the narrative, you guys, he went up to my couch. In other words, he's looking around at the rest of them saying, you know, I'm talking about Reuben here, blessing him and talking to him, but then he says almost to the whole crowd, that's what he did. Um, and so the firstborn, as defined by Jacob here, means my might and the beginning of my strength. We've talked about the firstborn in the past. He calls it his excellency. Now this is Jacob's excellency. That's in Reuben, his firstborn. Preeminent in dignity and in power. And, but turn to Deuteronomy 21, 15 to 17. Regarding the birthright and who is the firstborn in Israel. Because here he says, um, you know, you are the firstborn. Nevertheless, you're as unstable as water. And, uh, you know, it can't be trusted. You can't contain that. There's no, there's no putting any, anything in water. You look at a skiff on the water and you move around and things rattle from under you in a second. And uh, so it's just like that. It's unstable. Um, so verse, uh, oops, I went to the wrong one. Deuteronomy 21. 15 through 17. Now it's right in the law in Deuteronomy concerning the firstborn. It says, if a man has two wives... One loved and the other unloved. Well, who does that sound like? And they have borne him children, both the loved and the unloved. If the firstborn son is of her who is unloved, then it shall be on the day he bequeaths his possessions to his son that he must not bestow firstborn status on the son of the loved wife in preference to the son of the unloved. The true firstborn but he shall acknowledge the son of the unloved wife as the firstborn by giving him a double portion of that he has. For he is the beginning of his strength, 
and the right of the firstborn is his. And so we're seeing what Jacob saw. You know, he, he is my might, the beginning of my strength and my excellency. It even mentions loved and unloved, right? And that was Jacob, Leah, Rachel. I mean, if, uh, if anything, it would have been tempting for, for Jacob to make, you know, maybe Joseph his firstborn because that's of the wife that he truly loved. But that's not what the Bible says. That's not what the law says. That's not what God says. He says it is the firstborn plain and simple as as it is now that was by Leah and who was before Rachel's maid Bilhah who had the kids after that then Zilpah came next uh, Leah's maid and then finally after 11 children were born to these other three then Rachel finally has Joseph and Benjamin now the firstborn it says it receives a double portion the beginning of his strength and all that the right of the firstborn but of God's specific, um, or because of God's specific instructions, because there's prophecies, there's blessings, and things according to these tribes, according to the firstborn. Uh, you remember the whole thing with Jacob and, and Esau, and Isaac, no, Isaac and Jacob and Esau, when they, when they tricked Isaac, and so um, when, when Jacob did. So genealogies, birthrights, dwelling places, all these things are recorded and meticulously by the Old Testament scribes um, and they kept the records in, in the book of Chronicles. We're going to go there if you want. You can turn to Chronicles 5, 1 and 2 and um, you know all of this was important because prophecy will be fulfilled. Even the Messiah was promised through and uh, this, all these genealogies as we're well aware in the book of Matthew and in, in Luke. And so um, he was promised down through specific lines, specific tribes. There were also positions of authority for specific tribes, and then even the priesthood through Levi, and we'll see how that comes about. But in First Chronicles 5, 1 and 2, interesting little sidebar, or detour, really. Now the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel... He was indeed the firstborn, but because he defiled his father's bed, his birthright was given to the sons of Joseph. Look at that. The son of Israel, so that the genealogy is not listed according to the birthright. Read that. That's, that's you know, the key to all of this. The genealogy is not listed according to the birthright. And we'll get back to this later, but yet Judah prevailed over his brothers, and from him came a ruler although the birth, birthright was Joseph's. And so the, the birthright may have been Joseph's. He gave it to his two sons. But the ruler that ruled over would come out of Judah. And we'll see that as we go. So it says the genealogies are not listed according to birthright. But no judge, no king, no prophet ever came out of the tribe of Reuben. After this, in fact, Reuben never even entered the promised land. They were the half tribe Manasseh, Reuben, half tribe Manasseh, and the other guy. Can't think of it off the top of my head. Was they stayed on the other side, on the east side of the Jordan? They never crossed over and entered into the promised land. That was Reuben. And like I said, if you read through scriptures, not a single prominent uh, came from Reuben as far as a king or a prophet or even a judge. 
All this because Reuben slept with Rachel's maid, Bilhah, who she gave to Jacob as wife. So how is it described by Jacob? It says he defiled his bed. The word defile means pollute, desecrate as profane, make common, and violate his honor. It actually speaks of, the word defiled actually speaks of inflicting a wound. So Reuben inflicted a wound on his father by going into his bed and taking his wife. And um, so this is why he was not uh, given the birthright and it was taken away from him. It says his couch meant for his wife and his marriage. If you want to turn to Hebrews 13, just for one verse, I can read it if you don't want to do all the flipping. Um, But in Hebrews 13, verse 4, you know, he's winding up the book of Hebrews with some exhortations and some moral directions, basically, is what the title of it seems here. And, um, but he says in verse 4, Marriage is honorable among all, and the bed undefiled. But fornicators and adulterers God will judge. So let your conduct be without covetousness and content with such things as you have. For he himself has said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. And talks about contentment because we have the Lord. But it is, the bottom line is, the marriage bed is to be honored and, um, you know, whoremongers, adulterers, God will judge. A man's wife belongs to him. They belong to each other. Any violation of that intimacy and affection is a violation and a dishonor to that man and to his wife. Um, and it's a sin against God. It makes me think of David with Bathsheba. And David later in the Psalms said, To you and you alone have I sinned, Lord. Well, what about Uriah? What about uh, um, you know, uh, Bathsheba's grandpa, one of David's counselors, who never forgot it? You know, Was it a sin against them? Well, it sure did dishonor them. But God's the one that makes the rules. God's the one that says this is sin and this is not sin. Therefore, when you sin, you sin against God. And so because Reuben slept with Rachel's maid, you know, he lost all these things. But it's a, it's a sin against God who ordained marriages, marriage and the fidelity of marriage. So it's a dishonor and a violation to God. And it says plainly in Hebrews, it will be judged. Common sense is, you know, there's boundaries. He's literally saying there's boundaries right there. And for everyone else, and we're clearly told to stay as far away from that line as possible for the respect of sake, for respect's sake and not of reverence to God. The context for this in Hebrews is we serve with reverence and godly fear. If you look at the chapter before in Hebrews, you know, um, it's all about, you know, God is a consuming fire. He's going to shake heaven and he's going to shake this world and none who are going to escape that shaking except those who belong to Jesus and are hanging on to that thing which cannot be shaken. So in, back in Genesis, this is Reuben, and this is what happens when you mess around in somebody else's marriage. And there's, you know, there's just things that are inappropriate to how you talk to, how you, um, you know, cozy up to another man's wife. We're, here, we're all brothers and sisters here in the Lord, but... There's that, there's that limitation. You don't go to that place because it, it 
misrepresents the Lord at the very least and, and dishonors that marriage and dishonors both people in that marriage, you know, something's going on that's not right if that's the kind of attitude that you have. And um, so uh, back in Genesis 49, verses 5 and through 7, Simeon and Levi are brothers. Instruments of cruelty are in their dwelling place. Let not my soul enter their council. Let not my honor be united to their assembly. For in their anger they slew a man. In their self-will they hamstrung an ox. And Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce. And their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Now, we... One, we could go back real quick and just read a few verses, a few chapters back in 34. You remember the story, but if you weren't here, um, they were coming back, and they were passing through the land of Canaan after they left Laban, and, and uh, you know Dinah was Jacob's one daughter that we know of, and she just goes out and wants to see what's going on with the other gals and young ladies around the, the area, and some guys see her, they take her, this guy Shechem, sees her, takes her, and rapes her. Well, obviously, this should be dealt with. That's wrong. But if you look at verse 25 through 31, it came to pass on the third day when they were in pain. In other words, uh, they wanted to bargain for Dinah. And so the sons of uh, uh, Jacob, Levi, and, and um, Simeon says, well, you know, you can have her if you circumcise and all your guys get circumcised. Well, that will make you sore when you're an adult guy. And so a few days later, now it came to pass on the third day, they were in pain that the two sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, each took his sword, came boldly on the city and killed all the males. They killed Hamar and Shechem. Hamar was his dad. His son with the edge of the sword and took Dinah from Shechem's house and went out. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city. But just those verses up to 31, they took their sheep, their oxen, their donkeys, what was in the city that was in the field, and all their wealth, all their little ones, their wives, they took captive. They plundered all that was in the houses. And then 30, Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you have troubled me by making me obnoxious among the inhabitants of the land, among the Canaanites and the Perizzites. And since I'm a few in number, they're going to gather together and they're going to come and kill us. And I shall be destroyed by or, uh, my household and I. And they said, well, what should we do? Should we let them treat our sister like a harlot? And so it says they troubled Jacob. But it also says now in, in 49, not only did they kill a man, but he talks about their cruelty, their uh, severe wrath. Uh, and it was their, that anger in which they slew a man, and I think that might have to do with Shechem, but it probably has to do with then taking out everybody else, and something that we don't read back then, we read here, unless it's an entirely different incident with a man and his, his livestock, but um, they hamstrung an animal. They had in them such a violence, such an anger, such a wrath, that when they were done slaughtering, they had to go find something else to slaughter. That's what he's talking about here. It was uncontrollable. So what was the result? Even back in, in Genesis 34, Jacob didn't want anything to do with them. You've troubled me. You know, go, go somewhere else. Do something else. Stay at the back of the caravan or whatever you've got to do. And here it says in, in uh, verse 6, 
says, let not my soul enter their counsel. In other words, don't even want to hear what they're talking about or what they think might be a good idea. And let not my honor be united to their assembly. In other words, the name of Jacob, Jacob, the son of uh, Isaac and Abraham, the, who you know, worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, my honor, don't let it even be a part of these guys' assembly you know, because of what they did. For in their anger they slew and all that. And it says, and in their self-will they hamstrung an ox. Now, what's the result? He doesn't want to have anything to do with them and he ends up cursing them for their fierceness. If you want to turn to Galatians 5, uh, 19 through 23, he curses them for their fierceness and, and the cruelty and they actually have no parcel of the promised land for themselves. And we'll see uh, that as we continue to teach through. But um, uh, Levi, we'll see how that ends up before we're done here tonight. And Simeon, I th- think, does end up with an area near Judah. But um, if you want to turn to Galatians, uh, here we are. Chapter 5, he cursed them, and he says, You're going to be dispersed among all the rest of the nations. Uh, or all the rest of the tribes in Israel. But it brings up the subject. You know, that kind of wrath, that kind of fierce uh, anger, uh, uncontrollable, self-willed, and it doesn't, it's not satisfied killing just the guy who, who took Dinah, but every male in the city, and then goes after the livestock. That kind of insanity, craziness, I don't know what else to say. That wrath or that anger. If you look at Galatians five nineteen through 23, it says, Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, and notice this, outbursts of wrath. It's selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envies, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I told you in times past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit, look at the contrast. What's the contrast to that anger, that outburst of anger? Love, joy, peace. When was the last time you saw an anger guy going crazy who had joy and peace? It just doesn't fit with that picture, does it? And those... uh, you know, gentleness, or back up, uh, long-suffering. Obviously, they didn't suffer long enough because it came out. Kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And I think the key for anything that has to do with outbursts or anything that has has to do with wrath and anger is that last one, self-control. If you can't control yourself, you know, that is the fruit of the flesh, that's walking after the flesh. There's no controlling yourself. We all make mistakes. We all fail at all of these things. And yet we walk in the Spirit because we come to Him for mercy. He picks us up. He dusts us off and sets us on our way. And again, like I said earlier, He continues to work these things in us because we're born again, because we've been justified. We're not doing these things in order to be justified. We already are. And so we live in the Spirit. Let us also, he says, walk in the Spirit in verse 25. Um, 
You know, don't become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. And so that is um, Galatians. Walking in the Spirit is the context of that passage. The contrast, outburst of wrath. You know, don't lose self-control. And um, Ephesians 4, just one page. The context there was walking in the Spirit. Now the context is grieving the Holy Spirit. Verses 25 to 34 of Ephesians chapter 4. It says, Therefore put away lying, and let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry, but do not sin. And not, not only that, don't let that anger go down, you know, or do, don't let the sun go down on that anger. Don't take it to bed with you. And nor give place to the devil, which is in that context. That's what's going to give place to the devil. You go to sleep on this, you toss and turn all night, you stew on it, and pretty soon you're going to have an outburst of wrath, like we saw earlier. Let him who stole steal no more, um, no longer, but rather let him labor, working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give him who has a need. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary for edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. In the context, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. Last in Galatians, it's how to walk in the Holy Spirit. And now it says, don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, and there's a, the two, wrath and anger, clamor, evil speaking, be put away from you. Notice this, we're going to come back to it a little bit. With all malice. Well, you know, Put these things away with you with that same kind of crazy anger that you have, you know, that, that you don't have control over, is what he's saying. If you're going to be using your anger and your malice for anything, let it be that type of thing that you're putting away all this stuff from you. Get it away from you. And then walk in that peace. You know, evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. So the contrast, the wrath and anger, be kind, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. Not a lot of anger when you're forgiving. Um, you know, there shouldn't be anyway. Sometimes people have a little stubbornness about forgiving because they're still angry. Well, take that anger, use it to put away wrath and anger and um, be willing, ready to forgive. Like he says, Colossians 3, maybe three or four pages to the right. Verse 8, now the context here is God's wrath is coming on those who practice these things, um, carnal things. Just one verse, Colossians 3, verse 8. So, but you, now you yourselves are to put off all these things, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language that's out of your mouth. And he goes on, similar to the other ones, don't lie to one another. The context here is, is well, if you look back, I think I forgot to put all the verses in there, but, um, you know, just to get the context, going back to chapter 2, verse 20, therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why as though you live in the world, do you not subject yourselves to regulations? Don't touch, don't taste, don't handle, which are all concerned things which are perishing. 
and, and uh, with the using, according to the commandment and the doctrines of men. In other words, he's talking about legalism and so forth there. These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom, self-imposed religion, false humility, and the neglect of the body, but are of no value against indulgence of the flesh. In other words, self-righteousness is not going to help you out with overcoming these things if you have issues with anger and these others. So, But it says here, now here's where you look. Here's what you put your eyes on in chapter 3, verse 1. If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is seated, sitting at the right hand of God, Set your mind on the things above, not on the things of the earth. For you died. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Therefore, put to death the members which are in the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them, but now you yourselves are to put off all these. What we read earlier, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language, out of your mouth. Contrast your anger and your wrath and your malice with this. Seek first the kingdom of God. Seek where Jesus is sitting right now. You're Christians, you're following the Lord. Seek the things that that are where he is in heaven. Our life is hidden in him. We're going to be going to be with him. Um, he's at the right hand of all the power and glory of God. Set your mind. And that's sometimes the toughest thing. I'm a daydreamer. I'm, a, I'm very easily distracted. And so it doesn't take much. When I've got to study, sometimes I've got to put earplugs in and, and close the door and, and all that because just the slightest thing will distract me. But, um, you know, to set your mind to have that kind of discipline where you take your thoughts captive is an exercise. And it's a muscle that starts out weak and you start with little things and you start to exercise and it becomes stronger. So set your mind on things above. What else contrasts wrath and anger? Well, you died with Christ. You're dead. You, I didn't see an angry corpse anywhere in this world that I've ever seen. I've never really seen a corpse, so I can't say. But, you know... I don't think that's characteristic of a dead person to be outburst of wrath and anger. It's done. There's nothing left. They might have a squirrely look on their face, but that's about it. You know, you died with Christ. All of these things of your flesh are, are dead. Your life is hidden in him. In other words, that which you can be, that which is in you, is the Holy Spirit. And it's hidden in him. He has in you uh, the ability to work all these things, to be able to put these things away. And he says there, put to death the old man, put on the new man who is renewed by the knowledge of who Jesus is and what he is like. And it's according to his image that we're walking, not according to what we used to look like. You know, it says Jesus has created us and um, he's created that new man. We are new creatures. I wonder if I didn't read down far enough. If you look at verse 12, therefore as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, Kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another, forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against one another, even as Christ forgave you, also you must do. But of all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. Let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which you are called in one body. Let the word of Christ dwell in you, which is 
richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, and singing to the Lord. You know, because he's the one that, uh, back in verse 9, um, you know, put off the old man. Verse 10, put on the new man. It says, who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. And again, where there's neither Jew nor Greek nor male or female, because we're all one in Jesus, you know, put to death that old man. It says Jesus had created us. We are new creatures. We still have a flesh that needs to be constantly put to death. Uh, we need to deny our own fleshly desires. Jesus taught that we need to pick up our cross daily. In other words, you wake up in the morning, and after a few stretches and yawns, you realize you probably are already kind of going down a path, and you need to pick up your cross. You need to pick up uh, and put yourself back on that altar as a living sacrifice to the Lord. Now, James 1 is uh, maybe a few books to the, to the right. The context for James is um, there were those that, you know, were covetous and envious of the rich people that were hanging out in their their fellowship. Some of the rich people that were hanging out were not even true believers. They were flaunting. They were expecting special treatment just because they were rich. But he says to them, don't covet them. And, uh, you know, starts talking about trials. And, And they were saying, well, you know, we're having these trials because God's tempting us. You know, this is happening to me because God did it to me. Well, that's, that's not true because we're tempted because we're drawn away by that very flesh that we need to put on the altar that we need to crucify daily and pick up our cross daily for. And so 14 through 20 says, But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my brethren. Every good and per- gift and perfect gift is from above, comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. Why? That we might be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. He created us. So then, my brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak. Simple enough right there is good wisdom. Slow to wrath. Slow as in it's going to take a lot to get you to, to lose it and to, to lose that control. In fact, you know, slow as in probably ain't going to happen. And for the wrath of man, look at this, does not produce the righteousness of God. You know, contrast our temptations from our own flesh. They don't come be- from God because every good gift is from God. He brought us forth. We're his first fruits. He created us. But notice the first thing James says about these new creatures, you know, what we say, what we, uh, you know, be ready to hear, but just so slow to speak and slow to anger. First two things that James talks about when he's talking about who and what we are like as these new creatures. And so it's a contrast that he brought us forth. But, you know, why? He says, because man's wrath does not produce the righteousness of God. And it kind of goes back to, again, trying to accomplish things in the strength of our own flesh. And we can get just mad because things aren't getting better. 
And, uh, you know, that's just not going to work the things of God's righteousness out. Getting angry about things. What about society today? You know, how angry do you get at what you see going on in our country? The country that had such blessing and such great freedoms and now they're disappearing. Does that stir up a little anger? Well, I will confess, absolutely. But what does he say? That's not going to produce the righteousness that we're wishing our country still had or anything in any lives of people around us. Anger's not going to do that. You, you're not going to beat the Holy Spirit into anybody. You're not going to yell and scream and force and cancel anybody's disagreeing points. You know, if the person is, is a sinner and lost, they need the Holy Spirit to regenerate in their lives. They don't need us being mad at them. And it's hard because we're losing things. We're losing some of the blessings that our kids and grandkids are not going to have because they've stolen it. The chance for prosperity in this country has is, is been sold out by trillions in debt and, and all of that. So we can get mad, but that's not what we're supposed to do, is it? You know, it's, a, it's a good example, a good application for us. You know, if you look at Romans 12, 18, or 17 through 21, what about justice that we see kind of not happening? Or what about justice that we know God has said that he is going to carry out? In verses 17 through 21, he says, Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for the good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. And don't avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. In other words, you're not going to get to do this, but you've got to give place to it. For it is written, who's going to take that place? Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. If in so doing, you will heap coals and fire on his head. So you're not going to be overcome by this evil that we see going on. But we're going to overcome that evil in, with good. Not that they might change or not. Not that they might stop hurting you or not. But you have overcome that that evil with your good and it will triumph context is you know submitting to government in the next chapter and and you know being behaving like a christian and uh, being a living sacrifice in chapter 12 um, because we can rest assured that god will judge rightly you know i don't know who's who's the biggest one you think is the most you know well-known in politics or whatever in the world as the, the biggest sinner. And you can say, oh, I know everything about them because well, it's on the news channel, and so I, he's, he should get judged like this and this and this. God knows everything about that person and everything about us. And when he judges that person, he's going to judge that person rightly. Vengeance belongs to him. Again, like we talked about David, David said, my sin, I sinned against you and you alone, God. And so he confessed that, but... Whether these do or don't, it's up to him to take vengeance. And I'm sure Jacob would have expected some kind of justice, and maybe the Lord had something in mind for what was done to Dinah. Uh, remember the Lord had said, you know, uh, you will not intermarry with these other nations. You don't give your sons and your daughters to them. 
or take their sons or their daughters to yourself because they're going to lead you away with their false gods. And so Jacob would probably be expecting the Lord to have an answer for what happened to Dinah. Well, these guys just took off on their own and they took it way over the top. It might have been an eye for an eye and ear for an ear. In other words, Shechem for doing that would be the one guy that dies for it or whatever. Maybe they just knew that this would be all out war. Maybe they're a bunch of, you know, violent, you know, Shechemites and they were going to not give anything and maybe that's how it would end up going anyways with war and all that. But, you know, Jacob certainly would have expected God to have some kind of justice for Dinah. Now these guys just went way above and beyond. It was no longer about Dinah. They just wanted an excuse to slaughter and maim and kill. And when they were done there, like I said, it just goes on to even the animals. Um, Jacob was more than justified in cursing these two for their fierce anger and cruel wrath. Nevertheless, these two tribes were still part of Israel. If you want to turn to Numbers 25, interesting aspect to this in Israel you know these two tribes were still a part of Israel Levi and um, Simeon Moses who wrote the Torah the first five books of the Bible the Pentateuch he was a Levite you know Moses come along and, and he was a descendant of Levi the, we'll see that the priesthood came from Levi. But Numbers 25, 1 through 18, is a story about that zeal, that anger, that wrath that Levi and Simeon had being turned for good. That same zeal, that same fierceness. Israel remained at Kase- uh, in Acacia Grove. They had come out, they had... Uh, uh, been tempted, and this is the, the follow-up of the whole story of Balaam and Balak. And uh, so Balak, the king, uh, wanted to have Balaam, a prophet, curse Israel, but he would not. And so finally, uh, you know, they just send all their women down in, and, the, and all the men fall for it. And so the Lord's anger is now turned against them. Israel remained in, in Acacia uh, Grove, and the people began to commit harlotry with the women of Moab, and they invited people in the sacrifice of their gods, just like that. It's not just about the sex. It's about drawing into this worship and this false gods, and it always leads to something that takes you away from the one true God. They ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel was joined to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel. Then the Lord said to Moses, Take all the leaders of the people and hang out and hang the offenders before the Lord out of the sun that the fierce anger, or out in the sun, that the fierce anger of the Lord may be turned away from Israel. His anger was against Israel for going after these. And now he's commanded, take them all, every one of them. So that, so Moses said to the judges of Israel, every one of you kill his men who were joined to Baal of Peor. Baal was a false god. But the act of what doing that was with, was going with these girls. And indeed, one of the children of Israel came and presented to his brother a Midianite woman in the sight of Moses and in the sight of the congregation and the children of Israel who were weeping at the door of the tabernacle of the meeting. Now when Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron the priest, now Aaron was a priest, priests were of the tribe of Levi, 
well, this Levite had some kind of zeal, saw it, he rose from among the congregation, took the javelin in his hand, went after the man of Israel, chased him into the tent, found the woman there too, and thrust them both through with the man of Israel and the woman through her body with, as if they were right there together. And so the plague was stopped among the children of Israel. And notice this, all those who died in the plague were 24,000. When the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Phinehas, the son of Eliezer, the son of Aaron, the priest, has turned back my wrath from the children of Israel because he was zealous with my zeal among them so that I did not consume the children of Israel in my zeal. Therefore, behold, I give him my covenant of peace. And looky here, it shall be to him that his descendants after him a covenant of an everlasting priesthood because he was zealous for his God and made atonement for the children of Israel. Well, it was fierce. It was violent but it was in the right direction. And um, just as an example, uh, in Judges chapter 1, Judah would call for his brother, Simeon, and uh, as they start to go against the enemies of Israel and take possession of the promised land, for, uh, you know, they were zealous fighters for Israel. They were known. I mean, these were the guys that just were like that. And, um, but back in verse 8, and you know, we're kind of at our time, and this is a really long part of the study, and so I'm going to wait till next week. Um, didn't think that was going to happen, but here we are. Uh, Judah, the scepter shall not depart from Judah. So I'm going to call her there, if you don't mind. I'm sure you don't. You know, if you've got issues with wrath and anger, you don't need anger management. You need to realize that that guy's dead. And you have your life in Jesus now. You know, if you've got issues with, with just being inappropriate in some kind of friendship or some kind of affection towards another man's wife uh, or another woman's husband, it's, it's inappropriate. There's boundaries there. There's no, there's no reason to go there. They, that dishonors them. That dishonors the Lord. Anybody looking on looks at that and goes, what are you doing? And it dishonors you know, your witness before people. And so... Um, you know, just as a way of application of some of the things we talked about tonight. So thank the Lord for his great mercy and love for us that he saved us from all these things and put his Holy Spirit in us, and uh, we're still bound for glory. He's that seal. We're going to heaven. We're going to be with him. So let's pray. Thank you for your word tonight, Lord. and. Uh, Again, I pray that the things that uh, were of you would be remembered and go deep and bear fruit and you'd begin to use us uh, more and more uh, among our family and friends and neighbors and co-workers and wherever and however it turns out that we have an open door to share your love with a lost world. And we just pray that you'd be preparing their hearts for each one of us here and whoever's listening online and you know the future and what lives we're going to cross paths with. And we just lift up to you and pray that by your Holy Spirit you would be putting your name in these hearts and that they would call on you and that when they hear your word they would respond and there would be fertile soil there that's able to bear fruit. And Lord, we just lift that up to you and thank you so much. And once again to pray for our dear brother in the hospital and his family and lift them up to you. And we just ask that you would uh, allow us to walk with you this week and we're so grateful for the future we have in you. And we just lift all this up in Jesus' name. Amen.